0: You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives.
1: You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life.
0: But isn't that, like, cheating?
2: We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
0: Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box.
1: This is the Touch of Flavor Podcast. Dating and relationship advice by Kingsters for Kingsters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel.
2: Today we're talking to Janelle Marie Pierce, uh, Janelle is the SCDproject.com's executive director, the spokesperson for PositiveSingles.com, and a tri chair of the Communications Action Group at the National Coalition for Sexual Health. Uh, her writings can be found in Self, Hepatitis C.net, Kinkley, Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center, ExoJane, and Allure. For fun, Janelle stays active as a group fitness instructor and also spends time camping, snowshoeing, hiking, skiing, kayaking. Growing things, running through sprinklers, and building sandcastles. How are you doing today, Janelle?
0: I'm I'm doing amazing. That sounds really awesome. Read out loud. Yeah, well, <laughs> like impressed and interested. <laughs> so that's well, cool. Well,
2: that's a good. I like that you included some of that stuff in your bio. That is not uh, not typical, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. I like it.
1: I appreciate sure. it. I like I, I like when we have folks on who are talking about any kind of educational topics when we get to hear a little bit more about them as a as a human
0: versus just an educator. So I thought that was awesome. Oh, exactly. Right. You know, we're so multifaceted and there's so much that makes us part of a person, which is like kind of part and parcel to the work that I do. Like it's not about a label. It's about so much more and and the and the individual is still that same amazing individual who is diverse and dynamic and such. So yeah, I absolutely concur.
2: And that's one of the things I love about this format is like we get to educate and at the same time you get to talk about like fucking mermaids at camp. Like it's it's a, it's a good uh, it's a good format. I like podcasts. I don't
0: hate that. I was just at the National Coalition's annual meeting, literally this last week, and one of the guys Um, I was speaking with, he said, I, one of our questions, we were doing like this 50, 60 seconds, quick answer a question and get to know the people sitting next to you at the table. And one of the questions was why, how did he get into this and why is he still pursuing this work? And, and he's one of the directors of an, an, of an STD group. And he said, you know, I, I like the work itself. He says, but you also, I can't argue that I get to talk about sex all day and I don't hate that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, I I agree, you know, (laughs)
2: Oh, that's fantastic. So we are speaking of sex and kind of leads right in. So we are talking today about a topic that I think is both like at the same time kind of on everybody's mind when they're talking about open relationships and kink. And then that also there is just a ton of bad and contradictory uh, information about uh, which is STIs. And I'll be honest with you, I actually plan on uh, or expect to get a lot out of this conversation myself. So uh, I'm really happy we could have you on to talk about this stuff. So uh, I think a good place to start is if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the SCD project.
0: Sure. The STD project is primarily a website, and we also have a podcast and a YouTube channel. And then we are in the process of launching 11 additional websites as well, all around STIs and STDs. And then I've been doing this for six years. I launched the STD project six years ago alongside STD Awareness Month because of my own personal experience. I actually don't have formal education in public health and STIs. I was an accountant Um, I have a BBA and an MBA in honors accountancy, but um, I felt as though there was something else I needed to be doing. And I just did not. I, I personally have an STI. I've had an STI for years since I was 16 years old. I have I have herpes, genital herpes, HSV2. And then I've also had HPV and scabies previously. So I've had my fair share of experience. With STIs, but there just wasn't a lot of resources that addressed. There was all the clinical and factual information, which is relevant and necessary and helpful, but there wasn't a lot of resources addressing the gray area, kind of some of the questions that you're talking about. How often should I be getting tested? Like, what does this mean if I have a different kind of relationship, or if I have um, polyamorous, I have multiple partners, or you know, what what is the standard, and how do I still keep myself as safe as possible and as healthy as possible. And um, but also enjoy my life and the benefits and the rewards of having a healthy sex life and wonderful relationships and things like that. So that's the kind of gray area that we do a lot of. We interview people who have STIs. We do these STD interviews on the website and stuff. And again, I share my experience all with the intention of saying like, hey, there are people, lots and lots of people who've had this experience and it's not as the media would have you believe the actual people's individual experiences is not as pop culture portrays it. So do you guys, um, do you
2: guys do any kind of like activism? Like I, I see the National Coalition for Sexual Health. So like, is this in like any kind of activism involved? Or is it mainly an educational project? Or.
0: I mean, I would actually say that both, that they're one in the same, right? So activism, we tell that to folks a lot of times because I get people who have been recently diagnosed. Like our visitors are are, are a combination of people who are recently diagnosed and then folks who just are wanting to find resources about testing and about symptoms and whether or not and how to practice safer sex or what ways and ways in which they can practice that safer sex and mitigate their risk and things like that. So it's kind of a mixed bag of positive and negative um, people who have tested People who tested positive and or negative for STIs but in terms of the activism and where I'm going with this very long answer to your question is that I think activism takes many forms and I don't necessarily think it has to be a traditional sense of standing in front of a public office and holding up a sign that can also be your your version of activism and that's awesome and if and if you're called to do activism in that kind of way um, I think that's wonderful but I think that there are Versus we are, there are different ways that suits people and their energy and the ways in which they want to reach out to people. So sometimes activism is just simply sharing your status and your experience and your story with one person, whether that's a, a partner or whether that's a friend or family member or somebody that, that is asking you questions and you happen to learn that they're they're interested about this. Or it could be doing like I do and being out in videos and saying, like, here's my name and my face and I have an STI and have had other STIs. STIs and so I think it takes many different kinds of forms, and it just is what what makes sense for the individual and how whether or not it's safe for them to be an activist in a certain kind of way too, because not all not all forms of activism is safe for everyone.
2: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Actually, I think uh, I think what happened was I saw the National Collection for Sexual Health, which is. Uh, very close name wise to the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. And I was just thinking, huh, like activism? Like, is that so I was uh, I was curious, but I, I completely agree with you, though.
0: They might be one of our members, actually. The National Coalition is comprised of all of these different organizations, including like Planned Parenthood and the CDC, American Sexual Health Association, so on and so hey. forth. So they they very well might be even one of our members. It's really it's possible. Interesting. There's like different arms to this work. And I think activism is part of it. But I think there's different ways in which to activate and like how in which to become an advocate.
2: OK, so we're Going to going to spend pretty much this whole time talking about STIs, and you know, one of the things that I yeah I, th- I think it's such a hard topic in a lot of ways, and I, I think that part of the reason that it's such a hard topic is because there's so much conflicting information floating around about STIs, you know, like. What, you know, what, what are, you know, it's really hard for people to evaluate, like, what, what actually are the risks? Like, how, how at risk are people for different things? What different levels of uh, steps they can take to mitigate those STIs? How effective are those things? And, you know, there's just, there's just a ton of different information floating around about all this different kind of stuff
0: there's certainly a lot of shame around being sexually active and having relationships. And then, then you couple that with a potential unwanted consequence of being sexually active, which is an STI or an unwanted pregnancy. If you're, um, if you're a, a pregnancy bearing age and or a person who's able to become pregnant and either way, if it's something that, that is not what you would desire, it's not, it's not preferable outcome Um, however, they're not awful and it's not the end of the world and so on and so forth, but you add that to it and it's like immediately, then people are petrified. Like if I tell anybody, or if I ask about it, if I have this conversation, does it mean that I've had an experience with an STI and I don't necessarily want somebody to know that does it mean I am, then there's assumptions, there's all these assumptions. And then, and and culture also plays a big part in this because it's like the last acceptable bastion of shaming of, of ways in which we can mock someone for their potential being potentially promiscuous and dirty or trashy or whatever. And we characterize people based on their STI status as if it has anything to do with any of, of any of that, which it, it doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're promiscuous or not, whether you have multiple partners or just one partner. It doesn't, it doesn't matter with what kind of sex you're having. Like all sexual activities have some level of risk. And certain sexual activities have more risk, and that's just a physiological thing. It's based on your biology and what 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 you're actually participating in, whether you're sharing bodily fluids, whether there's um, a blood exchange potentially going back and forth. I mean, all of those things are what impacts your risk, and there's ways you can reduce them. And a lot of this is just like practical, logical stuff, but we don't see it. We don't view it that way because of the social the social norms or the social ramification around it, the way in which we frame it as a not practical conversation. Like nobody gets worried when you ask about, you know, hey, well, did you make sure to put your seatbelt on? If you've got somebody riding in the back seat? like, oh, hey, put your seatbelt on, you know, don't forget to buckle in. I mean, we say things like that. There's risk in everything we do. And so for that example, right, there's risk every time we get in an automobile, like there might be a benefit, there's risk and reward. So you have to weigh that. So with being sexually active, the reward is, is hopefully having really amazing sex and all the wonderful benefits that happen when you're sexually active when you when you're enjoying a healthy sex life. So yay for that. So there's but there's going to be some inherent risk there, just like there is every time we get in a car. But the reward is maybe I need to get to work because I need to get paid because I want to pay my bills and live in the house that I live in and pay for my giant dogs cool. and all of their food. And I mean whatever. So I I take that risk intentionally because I want the reward and then I do things to reduce that risk. And I don't think twice about it other than I don't worry about it to some giant extent. I know what the potential risks are. I know ways in which that I'm gonna use my blinker. I'm going to maybe I'm going to go the speed limit but probably not if you're me because <laughs> I always go 10 to over. I mean there's all of this kind of consideration and I don't think that we look at that when it when it comes to sex and sexual activity and then STIs as a result. We don't look at it in the same way. We don't talk about it in this practical kind of nonchalant way. I mean that's my hope is that we can talk about it in this lovely nonchalant practical way so that we can ask simple which should be somewhat simply simple questions about our sexual health and our history and whether or not we want to get tested and whether or not we want to use protection and what kinds, all of those things should be kind of a nice, even exchange, but it's always so awkward for folks. And that's what we're trying to make it at least alleviate it a little bit.
2: Hopefully talking about those things in simple, practical terms is what we're going to do today. But, you know, it is interesting. This actually leads to a conversation that I've I've been having in a lot of other venues lately that, you know, not sexual and sexual health related, which is how bad we tend to be as a species at evaluating risk we worry about and plan for all these really far out there scenarios right like like crazy things but then we like you know like like apocalypse and you know Y2K and all kinds of stuff but then we like smoke or we text and drive or we we do all these things that actually really carry a really significant risk <laughs> like statistically of stuff actually happening to us like uh that's quite bad. And we're really bad at like looking at this stuff and really kind of evaluating risk in different arenas the same way.
0: That's so true. And I think too with STIs it's like people are so petrified of the outcome and and because folks remember from like their horrible abstinence-only sex ed classes where you were shown slides of like maimed genitalia. And so you think that this like worst case scenario is gonna happen. And just like you said, that's actually very unlikely. Those are the 1% of the population who contracts that specific infection. And that person happens to be an immunocompromised individual with other medical issues that increases the severity of the symptoms itself. And usually this is like a third world country. I mean, there's so many things that are that are really not typical and practical and what people's experiences are when they contract an STI. So we're like preparing and freaked out and so worried about something that's not bound to happen. When the thing is, is almost everybody will contract, almost all sexually active people will contract an STI at some point in their lives. Most won't even know it because one of, one of those STIs will be HPV. 80% of all people contract HPV, 80% of all sexually active people. I have to use that caveat, 80% of all sexually active people will contract HPV at some point in their lives. And most of most of those infections will clear up on their own before somebody ever has signs or symptoms and even knows that they had the infection at all. So it's like, we don't even realize how much we are likely to contract an infection. Not that it's something we should all be excited for because I get it. I don't want to get a cold tomorrow. I don't want to have to go to the dentist. I need to schedule an appointment, which I'm trying to remind myself. So Anyways, um, and I don't, I don't want a cavity, but those things might happen and then I'll address them and deal with them as they come. But the likelihood is no, are all of my teeth going to fall out because I have a cavity? No, I'm just going to have to get, I mean, if I, if I let it go long enough and I don't get it checked and I don't go in and do some preventative care and things like that. I mean, so that this is all. It all applies to STIs, but we just look at it in such a strange manner. And it is, I think it is all based on that shame. You feel so bad and guilty and like something must be wrong or you did something wrong. You were un you were unhealthy. You took too many risks, you were not responsible with your body. And the reality is you could actually do all of the preventative, all of the comprehensive sexual safer sex practices that there are available, ways in which to reduce your risk, and you could still contract an STI, which then it's like you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. But I mean, so I think that's the conversation that I would love to see having more often between partners is it it being like a sexual responsibility conversation. Like here are the things we're aware of that we're at risk for. We know that these are out there in general, And then you also discuss whether, you know, you have an infection and then you say like, okay, which risks do we, are we really concerned about and we'd like to avoid if all possible and which ones do we not care that much about? I mean, some partners will choose that they, they want to be fluid bonded and they don't want to use condoms. And and if some of the educators and some of the more like clinical sites say you should use condoms for every sexual activity and oral sex and anal sex and um, penetrative like P and V sex and, you know, whatever. And if you're not, then you're not being responsible with your body. And I'm like, that's actually that it should be up to each partner and up to the partners. And 100, as long as it's 100% consented, it's totally up to you to decide what is going to be best for you and your health and what risks do, that aren't that big of a concern to you and what risks you do think are an issue, you know, sure. like whether or not PrEP, the you know, the HIV prevention is, is is necessary. Like not everybody is going to think that that's necessary and relevant. And so that's fine. It doesn't mean that they're being irresponsible or not healthy. And if they contract an STI, it still doesn't mean you're not healthy. So sexual health does not mean absence of infection. It just means being practical and thoughtful with your body, doing things that are going to be right for you, that you consent to, and that your partners are also consenting to, and you both are having, or both or both multiple or However, many partners are having rewarding relationships, healthy, rewarding relationships. And then you define how that works. Like I'll okay. step off
2: my soapbox. <laughs> so no, no, it's fine. So uh, what I'd like to do along that line is I'd, I'd be curious to hear with the place that you're coming from and, and, you know, the background that you have, how, since, since there is so much of a, uh, uh, you know, bad information, so many things about that, How would you uh, like what do you think would be a good process for people to go about evaluating risk since there is so much uncertainty and bad information and things along those lines? Like when if you like when you approach this, how do you think that people should go about evaluating like what their risks are and what they should do about it with with all that bad information out there?
0: To simplify on a spectrum, there's, of course, all sexual, all partnered sexual activities contain some level of risk, and that risk gets higher the more that you are participating in, the more that you're doing things like um, the more you're sharing fluids the more skin that's involved. So as opposed to like dry humping is going to not be as risky as if you're naked humping and and there aren't clothes on. I mean, so, I mean, this sounds really simple, but to break it down, the more skin that is exposed, the more fluids that are involved and then the different body parts that are involved. So if we're talking about, it goes in order of manual sex, oral sex, penetrative vaginal sex and then anal sex in terms of risk. So anal sex is going to be the riskiest, not because it's bad sex or wrong or something strange. Like, I don't know. It's just, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's because of our physiology. So anywhere that there's mucous membranes, and I'll try and make this not too obnoxious and sciencey, but mucous membranes are porous tissue on our body and they're meant to trap unwanted pathogens and when STIs are involved in what they do, when the mucous membranes trap these unwanted pathogens, they hang on to them in these in these mucous membranes, and then they attack them. And our, our immune system attacks it and rids it and so that it doesn't enter the body. However, with STIs, our immune system doesn't cure STIs immediately, and most STIs aren't cured on their own. So that's an entry point for that infection. So mucous membranes are housed in our eyes, our ears, our nose, the urethra the anus and the entire vulva, almost the entire vulva. So that's why women are more or, or, or people with vulvas are more susceptible to STIs and have a higher rate of STIs just because there's more exposed mucous membrane. So then back to the anal sex, why it's riskiest in terms of potential risk of infection anyways, is because the anus does not self-lubricate. So there are there's more likelihood of small, tiny cuts and tears, which also is a, allows for an entry point into the body. And the anus is all mucous membranes. So there's two factors there. And the anus is not as, what's the word I want to use? It doesn't expand and contract. It's not as flexible without a lot of a lot of experience, it's not as flexible as the vagina is naturally. So the non-lubing and the mucous membranes, as well as it being expandable and not as easily flexible as like the vagina would be. So I hope that makes sense, but that's really, it's it's just a factual thing. So the more your mucous membranes are exposed or the more you're interacting sexually with areas of the body that have mucous membranes, there's more risk. But then if you're just wanting to simple, make it super simple in order of least, Most risky, manual sex, oral sex, vaginal penetrative sex, and then um, anal penetrative sex.
2: Right. And there's some of the activities the risk depends on, your personal risk level depends on, you know, which side of that activity you're on, correct?
0: That's true. That's also yes, exactly. So if you are now to to some extent, right? So oral sex actually well, and I guess it depends on who whether it's a yeah, you yeah, know. No, that's actually the simplest way to say it. Yes. If you're the giver, the receiver, sometimes there's a little less risk involved for one versus the other. But I think it's if you put it on that continuum and simplify it And that's that's where I think that's also where this conversation gets confusing for folks and tricky because each STI is also different. So the risk that I told you, manual oral, vaginal penetrative, anal penetrative, that's the easiest, simplest way. And we're also talking about with no protection, no lube. We're just talking straight that activity without additional safety things involved, right? So as soon as you start utilizing some of the safer sex methods that are included in comprehensive safer sex, then your risk does start to reduce. It can get very complicated and each STI is transmitted in a different way. So STIs are either transmitted via skin-to-skin contact, but even skin-to-skin contact, you either need just skin-to-skin contact or it still needs an entry point into the body depending on that. So skin-to-skin contact with either simply just touching or needing an entry point. So what I mean by that is like pubic lice, all you have to do is touch someone that has pubic lice to contract pubic lice. But if we're talking about herpes or HPV or molluscum, which are still skin-to-skin transmitted, they're not as easily transmitted and in, in contractible as like a pubic lice is. You actually need an entry point into the body, like a mucous membrane or a small, tiny cut and tear then there are infections that are transmitted via bodily fluid. So whether it is vaginal or penile secretions or saliva and or blood, and then not every infection is transmitted via all bodily fluids. Some are transmitted only via blood. So it's like, you know, and there are 30 plus STIs out there, right? So now this is starting to sound really. Yeah, like so what you're saying well. is by
2: asking this question, I way overcomplicated this.
0: Yes. A little bit. And we do. And the thing is is I get that people wanna know because they're like, Well, and I get those messages. I kid you not, every single day somebody sends me messages that said I did A, B, and C this way with these people at this time and this day, and then I got tested here and I got this result. And now tell me whether I got an STI from so and so and when and tell me whether I'm at risk of an STI from this person and which ones and it's like that is so there is so much detail and nuance there and you need to know exact specifics and this is a giant conversation to even have one-on-one and i and i tell you what people ask me these questions every single day i do do consultations i started offering that for those people that are like no i really want you to tell me about this specific scenario Um, and i'm happy to do that but it's just it's one of those things where i'm kind of like you know i wish we could all realize that yep there's 30 plus infections they're transmitted in these number of ways these, this is kind of a risk level, so to speak, but knowing that we're at risk, we need to talk about risk in terms of consent and making sure that we're being mindful and thoughtful of ourselves and our partner's bodies. And then from there, it's like, okay, something still might happen. And then it's not the end of the world. And we're going to be and we're going to be educated and pro- proactive about it and, and and or reactive if we get diagnosed with something and we're going to move forward and it won't be the end of the world and everything will be fine. And we can still and basically, actually, what we end up finding out is that the majority of people after contracting an STI after a little bit of time, they go back to doing the same exact stuff that they were doing before. Their sex life is very Change very little in terms of um one about about the amount of sex that they have, and and in some ways it improves. And there are things that do change, but it's like it, it doesn't have to, and it very rarely even does to a large extent once people get after over that initial hump and that initial like shock and whatever and all of that. And so that tells me it's like no, we really don't need to know all that detail. I mean, yes, I'm interested in it, and I know the detail, and I write about it in detail a lot, but it's like most, most folks just aren't going to go that, go to that level, you know? Okay.
2: So let's, 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 uh, so I will, I will take the blame for spinning us down that rabbit hole then. So let's, um, well, no, so, so I guess, <laughs> I guess, apologies. no, 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 <laughs> it's, it's fine. Cause I, I think that does kind of clarify the question where, where I was trying to take it initially, which is, you know, in, in something that is, where there are so many variables and, and so many different things and, you know, so many different ways your risk level can change. Like what, what are the ways that people just on a day-to-day basis should be, you know, especially people who are in non-monogamous relationships and doing things with different partners, like what are just some of the ways that they should be, you know, thinking about risk and talking about risk just to try to make sure that everybody, uh, everybody's informed. Everybody actually has an accurate idea of what the risks are and can make intelligent decisions.
0: Sure. So I always preface this with we don't use the word or we try very hard not to use the word should in any of our conversation about risk and communicating with partners and in what someone when someone should get tested or what conversations they should be having or how they should disclose or, you know, that kind of thing. Because I, I think I like that. I like the, the being very specific about the word usage and choice because I don't feel as though anyone, any educator, any authoritative body or public health resource has the right to say what we should and shouldn't be doing with our bodies. And as long as we're fully educated and aware then we decide what to do with our partners and what makes the best sense for us and our bodies and our situation, our relationships. So that said, (laughs) um, if somebody wants to be be thoughtful and in, in practice safer sex and, and try and reduce risk as much as possible. I think the initial step is having a conversation about risk and about what concerns there are on the table between, which, between your partner and partners. And I think, especially when we're talking about non-monogamous relationships and multiple partners, um, I think it's important to make sure you know what someone is doing not necessarily specifics but what whether you're fluid bonded with another partner whether there are safer sex practices involved and I mean also it is a choice of maybe you don't want to know and you don't care and you're not worried about it and you're aware that this partner has potential other partners and you're aware that they may be using protection with some and they may be getting tested regularly and maybe they're not and that's a risk that you're willing to accept and then I think then that's all right that's on you instead of us then once we contract an infection then trying to go after someone and attack Someone because I think we need to take responsibility for our bodies, our health, and our activities as well. So that being said, though, yeah, I love the idea of having that conversation. I especially appreciate that in non-monogamous relationships and in ethical non-monogamy is when it, because I think that communication happens a little bit more regularly because it's necessary, because there is more communication, there is more negotiation that's out there on the table that's happening. Where I'm hoping, and uh, you know, you hope when when these are healthy ones. Healthy and happy non-monogamous relationships that people are having this com- communication and negotiation, this back and forth and dialogue a lot more often, actually, than a lot of heterosexual and monogamous, typical stereotypical kind of couples that don't talk about sex at all and they just do it with the lights off and like in missionary position, and <laughs> whatever. So, I think that that's communication is key to feeling good about the decisions you're making, and even then, to feeling good about whatever outcome happens, and if something does happen. One of actually the sex ed- educators I follow. I don't know if you guys know who Ashley Manta is. She's a, she's also dubbed the canisexual. Yes. Right now, she does a lot of work around. Um, Around sex and cannabis and those two things together, but she's in a non-monogamous relationship and her primary partner is married and she is has herpes and has had genital herpes for years and so she talks a lot about what that means and because right there's a risk to her primary partner and there's a risk to her primary partner's wife as well and so they've decided what is going to make sense for them in terms of um, reducing risk and that she might be on I I don't I can't say this for sure she might be on an antiviral. Um, which also reduces the amount of shedding and risk and things like that. So there's, and I think it's specific too, like if you are STI positive based on which STI you have, there's going to be different ways in which to reduce risk and ways in which you want to talk about what that could potentially mean for a partner, partner, partner. So I, the only thing I can say for sure is communication. I mean, that I, that should be, that's like the bread and butter of everything and should be our foundation all across the board. There I am using that word should again, but Um, so, and then from there, it's up to each partner to say like, okay, do we want to use condoms? And do we want to use condoms all the time? And do we only want to use condoms for penetrative sex? Or are we using condoms for oral sex too? Or maybe dental dams? And or are we using lube? I do think lube is everyone's friend. I used to say Lube should be everyone's friend, but again, with this, me trying not to use the word "should." But lube is also a, a risk reducer and and just can help make sex more pleasurable, in my opinion. And for both the benefit of the how how it feels as well as that it reduces your risk. Like, yay, high five to lube! But there's other things too, like testing, right? And you asked earlier, Josh, you were saying like how often should we get tested, and how often do you get tested? And and I mean, testing is its own also crazy dynamic because like i said earlier there are 30 plus infections right but when you go to like say you're going to a public health clinic of any kind a planned parenthood or the health department or even your doctor's office and you say test me give me a full sti screening you're usually only getting tested for four maybe five infections at best and sometimes only three so there are 30 plus infections but when you say i'm getting a full panel or when you ask for a full panel you really are only getting a test for about four infections and those are common infections, and those are ones that tests are easily accessible. So that's those are the two reasons why those tests are the ones that are given. However, it's important to note that, like, that's why we don't say clean or um, I don't have anything at all because you don't always know. And there's no way to know that for sure. One hundred percent. So you do whatever you can, whatever makes sense for you getting tested regularly because you want to. And because maybe before and after each new partner and, and then at intervals of every three to six months, if you have a new partner, just to make sure that your recent test didn't have a false negative because there's some waiting periods, a window period and incubation period to consider with testing. So there's, there's a couple of things
1: that you mentioned, and I would really, really like to dive into some of them. And one of them was around sort of the idea of non-monogamy. And a lot of folks have this, this sense or I'll say the muggles anyway. The muggles have the sense. And and uh, as far as muggles, muggles are the people who don't understand like open sexuality. And the idea is, is that if you have multiple partners, somehow you are quote unquote, more dirty, right? And and I'm putting <laughs> the quotes around it because it's not not true at all. Or you somehow are at higher risk not because of the numbers but be sim- simply because of the activity of having more partners and that's not always true like i went to a clinic and i had a whole fiasco where i went and i at the time had two partners close circle all of us have been tested quite a few times very open conversations and i was being told well you you're you're a much higher risk than anybody else and i said well back that up. I've, I've been monogamous basically with two partners for two years. We all get checked every six months. And, and why do you believe that that is a higher risk than your average monogamous person? And she's like, well, because you have more partners. And I said, well, what about people who cheat, who aren't getting tested, who aren't using protection, who aren't having these conversations? And she's like, oh no, well, it, No, you have two partners. You have to be at a higher risk. So I think there's this idea that numbers somehow make risk levels higher even when things aren't. And what I mean by that is I do think non-monogamous folks do have a lot of these very deep conversations around what it is that they do, who they share partners with, what their partners may or may not have. So I think for for non-monogamous people, the conversation around sex is a little less scary, right? Like it's not like if I'm talking to you about this, I'm somehow automatically doing something I'm not supposed to. But I think for other people who may not be non-monogamous, they might not know what to ask. So what are some things that folks when they're talking to their partners and want to be able to kind of get an idea and feel for what their risks might be what
0: are some of the questions that they might ask that's a good question i think first of all asking whether or not someone's ever been tested at all and then not only if they've been tested but then do they know which infections they've been tested for so some people we will you'll ask that question to and say it's a person with a vagina or a woman identifying person and um well actually you'd specifically have to have a vagina you don't have to identify as women so just a woman identifying person and says like oh yeah i've been tested and then you say, do you know what you've been tested for? And they're like, well, no, I, I get tested every year. I get a pap smear. I go to my annual exam. Well, pap smears don't test for STIs. So right there, you know, oh, actually, you might not have been tested at all. Like, do you know for sure that you've actually had STI tests on top of a pap smear? So knowing which infections specifically I think is important too and a lot of people really don't they don't realize it. they're going to say that like yeah I've I've had a full panel I've been tested for everything and I was negative I'm clean you know or whatever and if someone's using that word too you almost that's a little bit of a yellow flag I think if anyone's using the word clean or dirty or I'm not dirty or I'm clean or I've been tested for everything because that at least that at least shows their knowledge in that in, in the STI conversation anyways, that at least shows that they're missing some pieces and most people are. So it's not a bad thing against anyone else, but that's just, so I would say first asking about testing, that would be your step one.
1: Yeah. And I think it, as, as you said, it's, it's really important to kind of dive into what exactly you're tested for. Cause I got to say.
2: So we, we uh, run into kind of a controversial uh, thing here occasionally.
1: Well, it's not controversial really. It depends it's, on who you ask. It's more of the factor of, you know, my, my personal stance before I do certain activities with folks is I want to actually see paperwork. Like, I actually want you to provide me your paperwork. And it's not because I don't trust my partners. If I didn't trust them, I, I, I wouldn't have sex with them, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why I asked for it is because one of the things that I have seen, and this is over, geez... Almost a decade and a half of of being polyamorous and sleeping with multiple people and asking my partners to be checked is that a lot of people don't know what they've been tested for for one and that's that's step 1 one is I have no idea what a full panel is when I talk to my doctor and I say I want a full panel I want you to check all the things right I want you to to, to check me for everything and I assume that that means that I've been checked it checked it <laughs> I've been checked for all of these different STIs, and and basically, if if my doctor calls me back and says, "Up, oh, you're negative," that I have this this clean bill, and that's not always the case. A full panel can mean all kinds of things.
2: Well, right? I'll, I'll throw I'll throw one more thing on top of that, which is sometimes it's not even a lack of knowledge. My last cycle where I got tested, I went in and I had the standard like having to tell them what to check for because you have to ninety percent of the time. And, you know, so they call me back. They're like, yeah, everything came back fine. And I went and actually picked up my paperwork for another partner. And I'm like, where's where's this stuff? Like, I know you ordered it. You took the urine. I don't see the results on here. And they went and checked in the computer and they never sent it off. Like, oh, it's- no.
1: Well, and and with me, because we were we were getting our paperwork at the same time. I had actually gone and gotten tested three times, three times a few months back. And each time-
2: Unrelated medical.
1: Yeah, which the reason why I was getting tested was because they were- Well, first of all, I had my pap smear. And during that time, I said, cool, I'm getting my pap. I want to get my stuff. And I found out, well, boom, they didn't check for X, Y, and Z. So I was like, ugh. So then I ended up going to the doctors because I had ovarian cysts. And when you go, and they think that you might have ovarian cysts because of insurance, they'd rather rule out STIs than go and send you for an ultrasound because ultrasounds are big money, and insurance would rather check and make sure it's not something else before paying for the ultrasound. So I got checked again, and I said, "Well, cool. While you're doing this, my doctor's office left off X, Y, and Z. Can you make sure that you do that? Cool. I'm going to have paperwork." Long story short they tested stuff and they still left off two things. So I was like, look doc, I'm still missing these two tests. Can you send me off? And lo and behold, my doctor still left off one of them. So I got tested three times in the matter of like a month and a half and nobody checked me for syphilis. Not one person checked me for syphilis. So, and each time what was happening was, is that my doctor's office checked me off for a full panel and what i recognized after talking to my regular doctor my ob because of the the pap smear and also to the other doctor because of my ovarian cysts was that each one of them had different definitions of what a full panel was right. so this is the medical community the actual oh, medical yeah. community who are who do not have what a full panel is and so for me asking my partners it doesn't actually have anything to do about trusting them it's about what is actually this full panel? What have you been tested for? Like, seriously, I don't know. did they actually
2: test for what you think they
1: tested you for? And did they test you for what you think that you asked them for? So I think a big conversation is around really actually knowing what it is that you're being tested for and really asking for your own paperwork so that way you can look over it and, and be knowledgeable about it.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong. I can see why some people kind of are taken aback by you're asking to see the paperwork, but that's just what you're saying that you need in order to pursue sexual activities with someone. And you have the right to say you want them to do 24 jumping jacks, stand on their head (laughs) and drink a gallon of milk. I mean, it's your body and your space and your time and energy and your relationship. So if that doesn't suit them and they don't want to do 24 jumping jacks and stand on their head and drink a gallon of milk, they'd also have the right to say no thanks, but the reason why people get so worried about it and I think are taken aback is because everyone feels so offended. Like, well, what do you mean? You mean that you think I'm dirty or I don't take care of my body or I'm not healthy or I have infections, which again, like I said, the sexual health is not an absence of infection. However, that's what a lot of people perceive as sexual health. Like once you have an STI, you're no longer sexually healthy and that's just not accurate and isn't the case. But anyway, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think that's what you've decided that you would like and you need to pursue a relationship based on your experience and um, and you've got really great corroborating ar- in our great corroborating arguments saying like wait a minute, no, people don't always get the same things consistently and I'm even surprised to hear that with syphilis because syphilis is one of the ones that's almost always right on So that shocks me. I mean I wouldn't have been as surprised if you would have said like hepatitis B. Or something like that that isn't always on a panel. You know, it's almost always chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, and syphilis are like the four that you see across the board. But some people only regularly get tested for HIV. And then if you're not having conversations with whoever the practitioner is providing these tests, you may not be deemed at risk. And so they don't give you one of the tests that you would like. I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of differences within the medical field that's maddening. It's maddening as an educator because people want simple answers and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, there's just so much detail and there's so much information. And it is. It's hard to be able to just tell somebody, here's what you should do or the one thing or the four steps, and and then you'll be great and good to go. And we'll give you all a high five for being responsible and healthy. And it's just not nearly that simple.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as far as like with my the my 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 request for paperwork or a requirement for what I do, I guess for me, one of the things is, is that I also provide mine, right? Like it's not something that I'm asking from my partner that I wouldn't do. And I really haven't had a whole lot of, when I said conflict, it was more on other people who aren't my partners. My partners, I haven't really had issues with because I do present it that way. And I think that's how I present it as, you know, I'm not questioning you. I'm, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not it's the doctors actually doing it and things like that. And I think that that's really important about how we ask our partners so that way we don't make people feel bad, right? Like we don't make people feel like we're calling them something or we're speculating that there's something wrong is that the way that we approach it, like this is something that I'm just trying to look at.
2: Yeah, and one one thing I was going to throw in there real quick, just because uh, the way I heard it when you said it was when Cassie was saying she thinks it's important to you know to to get paperwork. Not talking about us, just in general, she wasn't saying that uh, you know if you're like you should follow that same kind of practice. That's a, like avoiding paperwork from your partners. That's a really personal decision and trading paperwork. No, I um, was saying seeing um, yeah, your own paperwork. Yeah, that you paperwork. need to see your own paperwork to make yeah. sure that when that doctor called and said, "Oh yeah, we did that stuff," that they actually yeah. did it. <laughs>
1: So yeah. if, if that was confusing, that's that's what I meant by that. Yeah, is definitely you should you should check your own paperwork. I think that that's that really phone important. call where the
2: doctor says, nope, you're good is not uh, should not be the last word on that.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's really important to check your own. Stuff. Well, and it's also another side note is that even if you see someone's paperwork and they want to show you, like there was an, there are a couple of apps that, that, you can, that you can get your STI test results sent to this app and then you can show or send it to someone to show a new partner, hey, I tested for these infections and I was negative and or positive, whatever the result was. The only bummer about that is I think is folks a false sense of security. And again, not because I think we should all be freaking out and really petrified of STIs, but because somebody could have literally slept with somebody or had sexual activities with somebody the the five minutes after that result came through and now they're positive for an infection so it tells you something but it doesn't tell you there is still like if you want to take it to that next level and if you are still concerned about that risk i mean maybe that's good enough and and that and that is for a lot of folks and i think that's awesome i think it's a choice that each person has to make about risk and like okay are those results good for me or would I also like to get tested? Maybe this is going to be a continuing partner and so I want to get tested with them in three months. And then maybe even again at the six month mark. And then if we're still just seeing one another um, and or we have the same pol- multiple partners at that point in time, then maybe we don't have to get tested again until we enter in a new partner or have had a new sexual experience that may have put us at risk again. But, um, yeah, I think you still in terms of testing, no matter when you get tested, they do say and will and will advise to get tested again three to six months later to make sure that results results weren't falsely negative because they may not have, the window period may not have subsided. Like if you contract an infection yesterday and had sex with a partner who had an infection yesterday and you get tested in the next week, you very well may be infected, but it might not show up on that test yet. So, so I think it's super helpful and I think that's totally up to you and I don't, yeah, I think that's awesome. Like good for you for being aware that there's that, all that difference in, in the test. I mean, it is, it it boggles your mind and So when someone's like, yeah, it really does,
2: (laughs) it really, it it really, well, we've had, we've had actually, I mean, this has been past experience too. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, like depending on where you go, certain places don't want to test for HIV or hep C if you're not a needle drug user, certain places. So with that in mind, uh, for people who are listening to this, who want to go and they want to get tested and now they're listening to this and they're like, oh my God, I just go ask my doctor for full panel and I have no idea what they do. What should people actually be – there's that should word again. What would you recommend that people ask uh, their doctors specifically to have tested when they go? Because at this point when I go, I tell them exactly what I want and then I double check to make sure they're actually doing it. So what what would you recommend that people would be asking their doctors for if they want to make sure that they're actually getting checked fairly comprehensively?
0: I think the four that are out there and really easily accessible – if your doctor's office doesn't provide chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis and HIV, a doctor or whatever clinician or practitioner or department, health department you're going to, I would I would potentially try for another option or another place or either go to two different places. Um, But instead of even having to go through that trouble, like find somewhere that will test you for the most, most things, the most, the most amount of infections possible, which really is only the max amount of infections that are, that there are even tests available for is about 10 to 15. And some of those you have to order online and they're expensive. And so it depends on what your resources are and that kind of thing, but I would say at least four, and then from there, it does, there is some risk factors and things. I disagree with like, if you're not a needle user, you shouldn't be tested um, for for HIV, especially, but um, hepatitis C, that's, uh, I don't know. It kind of goes both ways. Hepatitis C and B, um, what else am I missing? Oh, Trick, there's a giant debate still about whether people, um, Whether you, whether it's not recommended to get tested for herpes, but a lot of people want to know, however, depending on the type of test, there's that, that's a whole other conversation that we could talk about for an hour. But what I'll say is that you may ask for a herpes test, but your doctor might not be willing to provide it. There are certain places that will give you a herpes test, which if you don't have an active outbreak, you may test positive and you won't know where the location is. So you could have an oral infection or a genital infection, which is one of the reasons why they don't test unless you have, or unless you're presenting symptoms. But it kind of sucks because Herpes is like what nobody wants. It's like the last, it's the, it's the joke of every late night comedy show and every, every movie and things like that. And so people think it's just this horrible thing. So everybody wants to find out whether or not they have it, but a lot of people won't even provide you with a test. And then even if you do get it, you may not know where it's located. So There's, I would say at least four, but then if you can get additional tests, great. If they offer, I would ask them what they offer, what other tests are available. And then I think a good practitioner will tell you why you are or are not at risk and why they would or would not recommend it themselves. Um, And also based on whether your health insurance will cover it or whether you have the resources to pay for the additional testing. And then it's up to that. Those people do need to communicate Um, And I will say this is a need, actually, because a lot of times a practitioner will ask you questions about the activities you're engaging in and about your number of partners and things, and it's not because they're necessarily being judgy or they even care about that detail, aside from if, you are having, if you're engaging in certain kinds of sex, they may test different areas of your body. So if you get a urine test for chlamydia and gonorrhea, but you're having primarily anal sex with a partner and you don't tell somebody that, then your urine test is going to come negative because you're not having vaginal penetrative sex, And but then you could have an anal infection where they would have to swab, or you could have an oral infection. Maybe you're just engaging in oral sex with a partner and you haven't done anything else, but you, if you don't tell that to the practitioner, they won't know to swab your throat. So you'll pee in a cup thinking that that's going to cover your whole body and it only covers infection, non anal. Does that make sense? I don't know if I complicated things there. Uh, no,
2: No, I think it's, I mean, so, you know, the, the four, you said HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and I think syphilis was the other one that you said, Yeah. main four, and then talk to your doctors about the other ones.
1: And yeah, it's important to be able to talk to your doctors.
0: Yeah. Those four for sure. And then ask the questions about what's available. And then make sure to disclose and talk and talk openly with the provider. And then if you don't like how the provider, if the provider is not open and receptive, empathetic and inclusive then absolutely get the F out and find a new provider. You do not have to tolerate that. They're providing a service, you're paying for it, whether it's directly or through insurance, indirectly. You have to be your own advocate. And if somebody is not treating you in an empathetic and thoughtful way, then there are other providers that will. So don't be afraid to say, this isn't the right fit for me. This is not a place where I feel safe and where I feel like my conversation and my concerns are being heard and, um, and understood. So 100% get out. <laughs> if you need to. And and, yeah. and a lot of people do. I mean, this is often, this, we talk about this all the time at the National Coalition. So you aren't the only one experiencing that if you've had that experience too.
2: Yeah. And I'll throw, I'll throw two things kind of into this mix, which is number one, you know, what you're getting tested for it really at the end of the day, what's important about that is to know, to actually know. And that's why we said, you probably want to take a look at your own paperwork to actually know for sure what you were tested for Not even just what you asked for, but what they actually wound up testing for. And -hmm. then to be able to communicate that and the results effectively to your partner or partners. That's the first thing. Second thing I just want to throw out while we're talking about this is that, you know, because we've talked about doctors and insurance and, you know, but but many locations, you know, around the country, I don't know if it's all, but I know that it's a lot. You probably more insight on this than me. You can go to clinics if you don't have the resources. They will definitely, in my experience, take a little more leeway. In what they think you need to be tested for with your risk levels versus what you're asking them to do, but you can get it done for free.
0: That's true. And they also have the least in terms of the number of of infections and the availability of tests, they're going to have the lowest amount. So they'll have like three or four tests that they offer for free. And then anything additional, you'd either have to seek elsewhere and/or pay for through them. And Planned Parenthood's like that as well. So Planned Parenthood offers income on a income based testing on a sliding scale, and then they do some free tests for, for anyone. And then, like, if you wanted to get tested for herpes, you could go to Planned Parenthood and get tested for herpes. But last time I went there, it was fifty dollars for a herpes test, and I don't know if that's changed since that was a couple of years back, but then that's a cost and it's upfront out of pocket for you because it's not recommended right now in the public health sector and by like the CDC and things. So they don't offer it for free other than the recommended test, but they will do the recommended test for free. And then a lot of those tests are also part of a preventative, your preventative care and covered if you have insurance. So you can, yeah, there's a couple of different options there. Now, if you're in a rural community, it's not as easily, they're not as easily accessible for sure. And a lot of these
2: places too will also, you know, depending on your income level, be able to provide protection, condoms, dental dams, even birth control in certain cases. So if, you know, if you don't, there are resources available for some of this stuff if you don't have the financial means to where you think that you'd be able to handle it.
0: Totally. And lube. And lube. A lot of them have <laughs> lube packets. Individual lube packets. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's certainly that. I mean, even people talking about getting condoms, you know, especially our young adults and things talk to me a lot about dr- buying them and how they seem expensive for what you get and you know, so absolutely there's certainly any of those like the public health departments or or planned parenthoods. And even your, your doctor's office will oftentimes hand you a handful. All you have to do is ask. People just are afraid to ask sometimes, you know, and don't know what they can ask for. But the worst thing that somebody is, can say is, oh, no, we don't offer that. You know, it's not awful.
1: So what are like the, the common struggles that folks have when they come up
0: positive for STIs? The number one thing is is the stigma itself, is the social ramification, is what the perception is around people who have STIs, people who tested positive for an STI at some point, the assumptions that are made that you're trashy and dirty and slutty and promiscuous or a cheater, damaged goods, tainted. I've got a giant list that I'm working on. And, um, and all of those things I hear regularly. And it is that last area. We know that we can't talk about people's sexual orientation. We know that we can't talk about people's ethnicity. I mean, or we should know, I don't know, this current administration is having me think otherwise, but I mean, you know, in terms of PC language and the things that are no longer cool to say, and we don't talk about someone's disabilities and class and status and all of that stuff, Like, we're, we're well aware that when we do, it's a rude and crude joke and it's not going to be well-received across the board. But like, STIs and herpes in particular is one of those still ones where it's like everybody giggles and it's still joked about and so I think that's why it's so tough for people because everybody has these assumptions about themselves that they're not sleeping with dirty people and they're not dirty themselves and they're not trashy and they don't feel like it's a risk that's relevant to them they think only certain kinds of people contract STIs. so then when it does happen to them which it happens to the majority of people they're totally shocked and they're just at a loss and they don't know where to go from there. And there aren't a lot of people still even so even since I launched the STD project 7 years ago there still aren't a lot of people a few more have come out which is amazing and I'm so glad for it but there still aren't that many folks talking publicly about it for the very for that very reason because it's so pervasive the stigma.
1: We kind of talked about, you know, the common struggles but what can folks do? Like, you know, let's say, you know, you go to your doctors, you come back, and, and you find out that you're positive for something. How can folks kind of move forward and and still have awesome lives and and get over this? Because I know for a lot of people, you know, when when this happens, it it's very very scary, almost terrifying, especially depending on certain things that you know come back, but what can folks do to kind of move forward and and start taking a positive approach if they come up positive?
0: So I also think I should have said this along with when you said, what's the, what's the struggle, but the secondary struggle, I think that is, it kind of, coincides, but it just is like a slightly day or two later, hour or two after that first initial shock and shame of a diagnosis. But the, but the concern is always about dating and how am I going to date? How am I ever going to have a sex life? How am I ever going to partner, have a partner or get married or have children? I mean, that immediately comes pouring in right afterward. And I think in terms of like, what can people do at first, it's all right to be to be fairly miserable and frustrated and scared and concerned. I think that we we're taught our culture, or at least in our Western culture, it's often that bad feelings and negative emotions are all bad. That we're never we're supposed to just be happy and content and peaceful and lovely and amazing all the time. But things happen that we don't we don't want to happen. That they're still not desirable. They're not our anticipated effect of something an outcome. And so then we Sit for a minute in that. I think it's okay to acknowledge, like, okay, I feel like crap about this. This makes me feel really worried about my future and, and about my relationships and about who I am and what does that mean for me? Because I think then, if you acknowledge that, then you can move forward past it rather than trying to, I don't know, if we don't, if we don't at least acknowledge and say this is how we feel first, and then deciding, like, wait a minute, why do I feel this way? I think looking for the the looking for the origin of that. Like what is making me feel this way? What information have I learned? What's my background that is, that has made me decide that this is the doom and gloom and the most worst thing that can happen. And because it's certainly not. And then, then the third step is find some resources, whether it's, our resource, which, yes, great. If you love the STD project, then wonderful. But our resource isn't always going to rock everyone's world and isn't going to resonate with everyone. And so that's cool, too. So find a resource that does. Find find information and move past it that way. Like become your own advocate and empower yourself so that you don't have to sit and wallow for as long. And now it's a lot easier and more accessible than when I was 16. I'm 36, so I've had herpes for 20 20 years. I think I need to throw a party this year. I'm going to I'm going to do something about that. So anyway, but yeah, I mean it was it was a lot harder when I was a teen and we didn't use the internet in the same way. AOL chat rooms were still around. I mean, you know, I'm dating myself obviously, but I, yes,
2: I just made a face when you said AOL. It's okay.
1: That's all right. That's how me and you first started talking.
2: I know. And Aww. now we're dating ourselves, so <laughs> And oh. no, really. Oh my God, we did AOL. We did. We, we
1: we we like messaged back on forth with the whole like
2: instant messenger. Yes. You
1: know, oh yeah, no, oh, no, yeah. it wasn't Isn't that early. I was in
2: the military, and there were cell phones.
1: Okay, but mine, when you were messaging that me, me. My, my my parents hadn't updated. That doesn't to, surprise to, me at all. To, yep. yeah,
0: yeah. When I was using AOL, I still had a pager. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> gotta love that somebody got 411 on the phone and then you'd have to find a payphone there aren't even payphones around anymore my husband and I were talking about that (laughs) the other day and we're like we literally haven't even seen a payphone on the side of the road in ages or you'll see the shell of it without the actual phone inside anymore you know and it's just like wow it's it's crazy (laughs) we're getting old that's just that's all there is to it
2: Well, Janelle, I think we've had a, a pretty comprehensive discussion on this stuff. Is there anything that you want to cover that you don't feel like we have so far?
0: Oh goodness, no. I mean, I think I think this is certainly thorough. <laughs> I mean, for 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 the first conversation, anyhow. I'd be interested. You know, if you end up having listeners circle back and say, like, "Man, I have this this dying question," and I would have loved to have known this. I mean, I'd be happy to come on and we can do like you know, a power hour of just answering questions nice and quick and, and kind of filling readers in for their specific uh, listeners in. But um,
2: let's let's do this. So we have Q&As every so often. If you guys have uh, questions, Q&A questions specifically around STIs and living with STIs or safety or that kind of stuff, send them in. We get six or seven of those. And Janelle's up for it. We'll do a Q&A with Janelle, uh, which would actually be interesting. Janelle, that would be the first time we've done a Q&A with anybody just besides Cassie and I, but I think that would yeah. be pretty cool. Cool. And uh, if you're up to that, we will do that then. Once for we sure. Once we get enough questions for like a 30, 40-minute episode at least.
0: Yeah, if there's a need for it, then absolutely. I would be happy to do that.
2: All right, folks. So uh, so now you have a challenge to get Janelle enough questions to have her back on. So com forward slash ask. And you can send your question in there or you can call in and the number's on that page and you can leave it on the voicemail, atouchofflavor.com forward slash ask.
1: And we love when you guys send them in with the voicemails. Because then we get
2: to play them. Janelle, we're going to link in the show notes, which is going to be this episode 43. So it'll be com forward slash zero four three, And we're going to link to your website and your project and... Some of the other pieces of content that we've mentioned, maybe we can come up with uh, if there's like a resource where people can look up clinics near them or whatever. And we'll put all that in the show notes. The other thing that I want to mention is I actually a while back found these. They're like charts that try and do a really good job of simplifying STIs and safety with different activities. It's from this site called Smart Sex Resource. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to send those to you. And if you find those reasonably accurate – I would actually, I'll, I'll post those in the show notes for people as well. But I want to, I wanna, especially since this is your episode, I want to run them by you first and make sure that you actually, uh, this is something that you actually think is in line before, uh, before I put them up. So folks, if, uh, if Janelle, if Janelle uh, thinks those are good, I'll put them in and they'll be in the show notes as well.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. We use them. We reference them. They're in British Columbia. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, okay. The, like the, the two charts, like they have like the vaginal or anal sex chart and the oral sex chart and the other kinds of sex. And it's got like the, the columns and stuff.
0: Mm hmm. Mm
2: hmm. Oh, okay. Good. So those are fairly accurate.
0: Yes. Mm hmm. They're really good. They do a really good job. I like their visual, the visual way in which they put it together, like an infographic. Yeah, it's real good.
2: Okay. I'm still going to send them to you just to make 100% sure we're talking about the same thing. But I'm actually really happy to hear you say that because I found these a while back and they've been like the most, in some ways, the most useful breakdown of trying to simplify a really complex topic. that I've ever seen, but I was, I was never that sure as to how accurate they actually were. So I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that, uh, that they are, they're accurate-ish. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but I will still send them just to make triple sure that we're talking about the same things and, and I'll put them in the show notes for folks at a atouchofflavor.com forward slash zero four
1: three. So are you ready for our speed round?
0: Yes. Oh, let's do it. Cool. I forgot about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> All
1: right. So the idea is to get through the questions as fast as you can. This will be a challenge. Okay.
2: (laughs) So we've got 10 questions that should take you about 60 seconds to answer all of them.
1: Okay. Go for it. Cool. Game on. Uh, So the first one is, what is something you're not very good at?
0: Answering questions succinctly.
1: (laughs) All right. Next, best piece of of relationship advice you've ever received?
0: That there is no kind of bad sex. It's just whatever kind of sex that is consensual and good for you.
1: What are three things you couldn't live without?
0: Mm, Oh my goodness. Why is that a tough question that I couldn't live without? Some of these things are like, I kind of could, I probably could, but let's say, what do I do every day? Being outside, getting to be outside. I could never be in jail or in like a solitaire. That would, I would go crazy. I'm already a little crazy. Or what else? I couldn't live without my family in being and having those relationships. And I couldn't live without being able to go out to eat.
1: All right, so what turns
0: you on? Intelligence, hands. I look at people's hands and that's big. And then, do I have another one? What else turns me on? How someone smells. Me too. So
1: what's something that's true that nobody agrees with you on?
0: That it's cool to have herpes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> good answer for the show yeah so what is
0: your biggest fear my biggest fear my life being oh oh my goodness there's the timing my life being <laughs> <laughs> we've never done that before but it seemed appropriate <laughs> this is so tough I'm so bad at this oh yes my, be- my life being insignificant
1: all right. Um, what's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It can be sexual or
0: non-sexual. Uh, jumping out of a plane. A book you would recommend for our listeners. Hyperbole and a Half. Uh, who's your movie star or TV crush? Tom Brady. Ugh.
1: What's something you're working <laughs> on right now? That you- <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: He's um, both he's both a man and on, not on Cassie's football team. Yeah,
0: so. it's just so bad. Okay. All right. <sighs> um that would be my male. I would say female. I'm still a big fan of Angelina Jolie. Okay. You yeah. won points back. We can be friends now.
1: Uh, what's something you're working
0: on right now that our listeners oh, should know about? Oh my gosh, I just want to share this. So now I'm screwing this all up, but I just wa- I was just watching Pose. Have you guys seen Pose? It's um, a show on FX about uh, the transgender community in the 1980s in New York. And then I watched, uh, then I was like so into it. And then I found some trans porn and totally masturbated at the other day. So like I'm all over the board in terms of my preferences, but there aren't a lot of like movie stars that are transgender yet that I've seen celebrities. So anyway, I digress. Go ahead. I didn't know about the show, so it sounds good.
1: All right. So I'll re-ask the other
0: question.
2: And we've kind of mentioned this, but where can folks find you online, Janelle?
0: Oh, the stdproject.com, The S T D project. I'm on all the social media channels too. So I'm pretty easy to find that way.
2: And we'll link to you in uh, like I said, we'll link to all those in the show notes at a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero four three. All right. Well thank you for joining us today, Janelle. This has been a fantastic conversation.
0: Oh good. Good. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted and I was so thrilled that you were interested and and that's supportive and encouraging. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-T-O-F-1.